Hi, this is Jim Lobato. I'm the president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on BizTalk Radio Show. I started BizTalk so you can have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group, which is in the business of helping the leadership of growth-oriented companies realize their potential. We do this by working with their sales force and helping those individuals discover and develop their unique abilities and then align those abilities with their opportunities. That's why we're known as a sales force development company. I hope you enjoy this podcast. On our program today is Bob Silert, who is chairman of Saatchi and & Saatchi, and his new book, Start With The Answer and Other Wisdom for Inspiring Leaders. Bob, welcome to the program. Very nice to be here. I was at Harvard Square a couple of years ago at the Harvard Bookstore, and I've been there a couple times on, in Boston on business, and I said, you know, let's just go into campus, look at Harvard, find out what's going on, take a walk around, and right across from the Harvard Bookstore is the Dexter Gate. You know, they have numerous gates going into Harvard. This one yep. is the Dexter Gate, and above the Dexter Gate, the thing that took me aback, there's an inscription that says, enter to grow in wisdom. And then when you leave from that gate, coming out of Harvard, it says, depart to serve better thy country and thy kind. Mm. And I remember those quotes, and then after reading your book, it seems like you went through that gate numerous times and took it to heart, because you sure came in looking for wisdom, and you came out to serve. And uh, that's what your book is about, which is, is... taking this wisdom over a 40-some-plus career and passing it along to not only our current leaders, but our future leaders. And what I've noticed is really lacking right now is leadership on many levels. So let's start out with some of the fundamental wisdom you have in your book for our leaders and what it takes to be a leader today. Well, I think, you know, Becoming a good leader uh, requires you to do three things, really. Uh, The the first thing you have to do is you have to set direction for the enterprise. You have to develop a sense of what's this company all about and where can we take it? How will it flourish going forward? And the second thing you need to do is to establish standards for performance. uh, what, what, What are the expectations? that the people clearly ought to have about the firm they're a part of. And, uh, you know, how, how is that going to be measured and how will it be recognized and rewarded, that kind of thing. And then most importantly, I think, a, a leader's got to be great at communications that can take that vision forth, that can take those standards forth, but can, most importantly, unleash the energy of the organization. You cannot get the job done alone. You, you've got to rally. You know, uh, in our case at Saatchi and Saatchi, we have 5,000 people around the globe. And you know, we've got to unleash their energy. We've got to motivate them. So we can set them in the right direction. We can establish high standards of performance. Ultimately, they're the people that get us there. I think those are the three big things in, in leadership. And let's go back to your career again. After college, you went on to uh, spend 23 years with General Foods Corporation, and you've held uh, 17 different positions there. 
as you worked through the different divisions. And then you went on to leave that company and uh, go on to Topco. And it just keeps cascading from there. But along the way, where did you form your insight on wisdom in terms of leadership? What examples did you see? Because you can succinctly say that in the short time that you did, but that's based on 40 years of, of experience. Yeah. So what did you see along the way that you picked up and you're able to narrow it down into three or four major things? Well, one of the transforming experiences that I was fortunate to have in my life was I attended the Aspen Institute in 1982. Uh, there were business people there. There were political people there. There were not-for-profit people there. And we had readings to uh, go through before we arrived on scene, some of the greatest writers and thinkers of all time. And we would get together in the mornings and we would debate uh, various topics that would come out of these readings. It's very basic kind of things like, you know, uh, are men good, are inherently good, or are they inherently evil? And when I came home from that experience, I wrote a personal statement. Uh, I basically asked myself, who am I? What do I believe in? What do I want to stand for? When I get that down on a piece of paper, you know, uh, how am I going to carry that forth? And uh, what will it mean for me as a person? So it's on page 26 of the book. And, you know, basically I cast my lot uh, as a person who believed in thinking about the long term, about growth, about continuous improvement, and about having the organizations that I was going to be a part of be in a position to outcompete their competition. And I thought... As I put that down, the place to begin was an open, honest, candid assessment of a situation. Get the truth out on the table, no matter how ugly, so you can deal with it and go forth from there. That kind of led me to the whole start with the answer type of approach. You know, once you had your assessment, you'd uh, lean back and before you spent time and money, you'd think about where did you want to get to and... Uh, that's once you had that in mind, you were in a position to in invest and deploy people. Right. And in the chapter in the book, you have it titled, uh, Get to Know Yourself Better. And I think that's uh, very sound advice. And do you find, as you work with groups out there and, and you, as you talk to different individuals, that they often skip that one step? I think uh, too many people do skip that step. And in truth, if you want to be a leader, you, you first of all have to know yourself because you've got to stand for something in front of the group of people that you would call your would-be followers. You know, uh, you, you really need to be clear on, on who you are, what you're all about, why you're there, and why they should follow you. So I think knowing yourself is the fundamental starting point for that. And, and to be honest, I think a lot of people just for whatever reason, uh, they don't go through that self-assessment. They're insufficiently reflective. And when you, um, later on in that section of the book, you say, you know, you have a whole chapter devoted to how to become a senior executive. So talk about that transition of knowing yourself, learning the leadership skills, and then going on to be a senior executive in an organization. Yeah. Well, 
transformational thing I think in becoming a senior executive is, you know, at the beginning of your career, you're, you're learning your craft. So for me, that was the art of marketing and all of its various elements. So I, I became, you know, someone who could look at a situation, branding and packaging and advertising, consumer promotion, trade promotion, the retail environment, all, all of those things I, I gained an understanding of. And uh, then I got into a leadership position in a division, and I began to put those together in a multifunctional sense. So how did those marketing things integrate with operations, with technical research, and uh with the whole human resources group and uh, the financial aspects of the business. But the big development thing for me was, uh, you know, it's one thing to be the leader of an organization. You're the hands-on person. You're the person in charge. To become a senior executive, ultimately what you have to do is you have to inspire those kind of people, the people who are leading multiple divisions. So in becoming a, a senior executive, you know, I began to supervise a bunch of hard-charging people who were leaders of individual groups, uh, just as I had been. But at that point in time, you know, how, do, how would one do that? You had to inspire them based on the values, the beliefs, the principles that you stood for and that you could carry forth. And uh, again, that I think is a, a really high test of leadership when you can, in truth, inspire other hard-charging people based on the soundness of your values, beliefs, and principles. Well, Bob, give us an example, if you would, of, of what you mean by your inspirational leadership then. I mean, I, we understand it very intellectual. Okay, go out and be inspiring. Yeah. How did you do that? Um, well, I think, you know, one of the big things that uh, I, I've always practiced is is having a significant presence with my organizations. You know, I, I really, in all the turnaround things I've been in, the first thing that I've wanted to do is to get out in front of as many people in the organization as I possibly can, to have them see, you know, who is this guy? What's he all about? Why is he here? What's he going to stand for? Where is he going to take us? How are we going to proceed? And and you want, you know, right at the inception to uh, to have that command presence. You want it to be a ongoing, hands-on, you know, a type of thing. I've also tried to further that once I get on the scene. So I have a chapter in the book on a thing called Breakfast with Bob. When I was down at the Kaiser Roth Corporation, you know, I got in front of the whole organization on day one. But then we unfolded this program where I had breakfast with every single person in the headquarters in groups of seven twice a week over the course of 29 weeks it took me to do this. But most people had never even met the CEO, let alone have a one-hour breakfast with them. And so it's that hands-on presence, you know, a, being there, kind of uh, in touch, uh, in I think that's a way to inspire people. So it's not necessarily hiding in your corner office and looking at reports all day. Uh, it's exactly the opposite of that, to be honest. You also have uh, in your book, and by the way, I want to tell our audience, the book is wonderfully written, and uh, it's well organized, and it's a good read, and I think it's one of those books, Bob, 
that you can, in my personal case, I call it the nightstand book, one of those that will make it to the yeah. nightstand yeah. because okay. you can pick it up at any time, open any section of the book, and pull some wisdom from it. So I want to congratulate you on a well-organized and well-thought-out format to your book and not only the format to it, but obviously the content with it. Thank you. Thank you very much. So before we move on, because we're really talking about Section 2 of your book right now, you have a section in there uh, called the Sales Fundamentals, and a big part of our audience are salespeople out there. So give them the Bob Salert Sales Fundamentals. Well, uh, I, I started out on a sales internship calling on retail grocery stores in the upper half of Nassau County on Long Island. And uh, I was aligned with the Post Division. And so I was trained by a sales supervisor that uh, in terms of uh, distribution, shelving, pricing, and promotion, that those were the four basic fundamentals of, you know, of being a retail salesperson in the grocery environment. So distribution, your product obviously has to be in the store. Uh, if it's not there, nobody can buy it. So getting distribution on all of the priority items, and uh, you know, even in di- sizes as well as brands, you know, is an important starting point. Uh, the second thing was having them shelved prominently so that they could be found in the store, and also with a cubic displacement that would involve enough product so it wouldn't be out of stock. And the third element was getting everything properly priced uh, relative to your suggested retail price relative to competition. And then the fourth thing was uh, getting promotional support and uh, erecting displays uh, in the store or uh, getting feature prices or ads and that kind of thing. And so this was uh, way back in the uh, mid-1960s. And in truth, if you went into a uh, called on a retail grocery store today, your your fundamental responsibilities would be the same as they were then. Get the product in the store, get it shelved, get it properly priced, and get it promoted. And uh, I also, it's kind of, you know, it's a funny aspect of the story because I made my first retail call, and I think it was the most thorough retail call in the history of a salesperson calling on a grocery store, but it took me about an hour and a half to get through it, and uh, I suddenly realized, oh my God, I'm supposed to be making eight of these calls a day, and if I'm as thorough on each and every one of them, uh, you know, it's going to be a lot of 12-hour days, so I had to learn how to uh, balance my time and save some things for, let's say, the second call as opposed to the first one. but, you know, the fundamentals of selling, uh, I think, pretty much uh, are unchanged. There's a lot of technical support stuff that uh, helps you to get the job done. But the end objectives and expectations are pretty much the same as they always have been. Our guest is Bob Saylert. He's the chairman of Saatchi and Saatchi, also author of the new book, Start With the Answers and Other Wisdom for Inspiring Leaders. And so let's get to the third section of your book, where you start out with, start with the answer. What do you mean by that? Well, when you go into a situation, you know, particularly true in a turnaround kind of situation, uh, there are all kinds of issues and problems that may be coming up. And, uh, you know, if you begin to just 
a scattershot way go off and attack each and every single one of them. Uh, you, you may lose sight of the forest through the trees, and you begin to deploy time and money uh, to things that, in truth, could turn out to be peripheral kind of issues. So start, start with the answer is go get yourself an open, honest, candid assessment of the facts. But before you go off and spend time and money, step back and think about where is it that you want to get to? Where do you want this to end up? And uh, once you have that, then you're much in a better position to work your way back to the solution. Now, I like to accompany that with an assessment of what's going on in the industry. And uh, is there somebody out there in the peer group who is a potential success model that uh, you, know, you could advantageously study and uh, take advantage of the findings? So, for example, when I went into the world of Saatchi and Saatchi, I could have been diverted off into a million issues because uh, the company was in relative chaos on the day I got started. The uh, brothers had left the company. They'd gone to another part of town and started up what was becoming a competitive organization. The company was losing money. It had too much debt, too high an interest rate. It was all coming due too soon clients and staff were asking should they stay or leave and so everybody was telling me you know how bad the situation is how they didn't see any prospects and so I listened to all of that but I thought well before we spend time and money I'm going to take a look at what's going on in the industry you know uh, what's happening in the peer group and we found an entirely different picture when we looked at that the industry was growing five to seven percent the peer group companies had margins in the 10 to 12 percent arena and uh, the worldwide companies, the ones that were positioned on the worldwide stage, were in fact growing at the high end of the industry range because clients were globalizing their business and they were beginning to consolidate with agencies that could provide them service on a global type of scale. So we basically decided, you know, right from the get-go, that we would position ourselves as a creative hot shop on the world stage looking at the financials of the other guys, we figured adjusting for relative size, if they could be getting margins in the 10 to 12% arena, we ought to be able to get it into the 8 to 10%. We were smaller. And uh, so we began to adapt some of those financial practices, and uh, we got ourselves properly positioned. Lo and behold, the following year we were making money, and we followed that with uh, three years of pretty spectacular growth. When you look over the course of your career, you've been CEO of five companies in three different industries, consumer packaged goods, women's legwear, yeah. and most recently, the advertising business. Right. And so you seem to be breaking the mold of, you know, find your unique talent and go after it. And, and at the same time, obviously, you must have a unique talent, even though you've taken it to different industries and able to replicate it. And there must be the Bob Saylert formula to drive not only turnarounds, but drive results. Is yeah. that a correct statement, or do you look at it that well, way? Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting because the things I have in the book, I believe, have proven themselves to be operative and to work well in three different industries in all kinds of different environments. I, I will say, as, as I go to uh, various industries, 
I, I carry the same values, beliefs, and principles into each and every single one of them. I mean, I, I can take that personal statement that I wrote on page 26, and I can apply it to the uh, consumer packaged goods industry. I can apply it to, uh, you know, legwear. I can apply it to advertising because it's who I am and what I stand for. One thing I think I have done that may be different than other people who travel from industry to industry, I have a story in the book on this, which is don't ask what's wrong. Ask what's right. And, you know, a lot of people go into a new situation, and, and they're looking for, well, what's wrong with this company? And uh, what am I going to come in and do as Mr. Fix-It? And one of the things that I like to do before you get into uh, you know, directing yourself to what's wrong is to ask yourself, what's right? You know, uh, if this place has fallen on hard times, you know, at one point in time, you know, it had a bunch of things that uh, were making it a pretty good company. You know, it had risen to greater heights before it started to fall behind. So even, for example, in the situation that I was talking about at Saatchi and Saatchi, you know, my own feeling is that the Saatchi brothers had put in place a lot of very sound, fundamental things at the inception. And we developed the motto, you know, we're going to keep the best and we'll purge the rest. But at least we had the foresight to ask ourselves, what had these guys done right? And things like, you know, the mantra of the company being nothing is impossible. You know, the hiring criteria of hiring people who were passionate, competitive, and restless. Um, the, the whole notion that the work was the important thing. And uh, so th these are things that we tried to uh, preserve as uh, we took some homage to the past, but then we tried to update it to uh, both the present and take it off into the future. I think that that starting point of asking what's right before you uh, attack what's wrong is a good starting point. In your experience, you've had a lot of turnarounds, and maybe turnarounds have some same characteristics of what companies are going through today, even though there may be outside factors that may have revenues flatlined or maybe declining. Is there experience from your turnaround that can be applied to what we're dealing with today in terms of some economic pressures? Or is it really two different sets of how to look at a business and keep it viable and growing? Well, I think sometimes in today's world, people can become unduly preoccupied with the financial results and insufficiently occupied with what the enterprise is all about and what creates those financial situations in the first place. And I'll give you, you know, my two cents as an example of that is the, uh, everything that we see going on with General Motors. You know, we, we just had this uh, government bailout, and I guess today's the day they're coming out of their uh, bankruptcy. And they've cleaned up a lot of financial issues, you know, as a result of that. So they uh, had a lot of legacy costs. They put them behind them. 
They felt they had too many dealers. They put them behind them. They felt they had too many brands. They felt they had too many plants, so they had to shut down plants, get rid of the excess capacity. That means they got to lay off more workers. There's a lot of costs associated with all of that. And, you know, I sit there and say, yeah, those are all, you know, interesting financial things. They're all issues that need to be dealt with. But I'm not sure that's what the problem has been at, at General Motors. Uh, you know, is, I'm a consumer packaged goods guy by background. And in consumer packaged goods, you know, you pay tremendous attention to your share of market. Because that's the result of the consumers voting every day at the supermarket for whether they're buying your product or somebody else's. So at General Motors, you know, if you looked at that measure, you, know, uh, you, you have a company that over the course of the last 50 years has lost 34 share points. I mean, this is not some recent kind of situation. There's an underlying phenomenon here, you know, that uh, when Americans have come due to uh, buy their next vehicle for 50 consecutive years in you know, decreasing proportions, they've you know, uh, essentially haven't voted to buy cars in General Motors. Well, because it's interesting in the package good industry, I'm sure we like if if you lose a half share or one share, bells and whistles go up. They send up yeah, exactly. the flares. They right. call the meeting, <laughs> rally yeah. the troops. Right. So, so let me just translate this for you because you know in the, today's automotive industry, if uh, you know if General Motors still had a, a 52 share, they'd be selling uh, on a, on an annualized basis. You know, in a normalized market, they'd be seven selling seven and a half million cars, not less than three. They wouldn't have a lot of excess capacity. They wouldn't have to lay off all those people. Therefore, they wouldn't have had all of the legacy costs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The real problem is 50 years of losing share of market versus year ago to the tune of 34 points. And that says something really about your ability to design, build, and sell cars. And uh, so you know, this is something that uh, isn't getting any press. You know, nobody's talking about what's being done to transform the extent to which this company is going to design, build, and sell cars that Americans want to line up and rush out to buy. And, uh, yeah, we put all these financial issues around this. But uh, unless they solve that deeper problem, you know, uh, it's just going to kick the can down the road. Yeah, it gets back to the uh, – someone told me a long time ago that in business they – Either whether it's the consumer or the client, they're never wrong, and they, and they vote with their with their with their wallets yeah. every day. But that's that's why share a market is a great measure, you know, because right. it is it, it's the result of consumers voting in the marketplace. Away from your book for a second, maybe it's related. And the book we're talking about is Start with the Answer. And on uh, Bob on one of your blogs, I read something the other day, uh, leading in tough times. And you already said it once. And maybe this is in relationship to what you've just talked about with General Motors or business in general. You said your rule number one is get the truth on the table. Yeah. So and when you hear that, it's like, man, that, 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 that's, a, that's obvious. It's, it's a truism. It, in your experience, though, what prevents leaders from getting to that first step of getting truth on the table? Um, I, I've got to tell you, 
that in, in a lot of situations, you know, where people don't get the real truth out on the table. And, uh, you know, it's just, until you do that, no matter how ugly it is, you're not in the position to deal with it. And so I, I think that's a, a, a fundamental kind of issue. Now, you know, getting the truth out on the table in, in the tough times that we're in is, uh, you know, recognizing how tough these times are. It's Sachi and Sachi, you know, I've been there, this is my 14th year. In the first 13 years, you know, the worldwide media spend was growing up five, four to five percent a year. And uh, then suddenly, in the second half of last year, it started to hit the wall. And we immediately recognized that it was going to be a negative environment. And uh, we didn't know how far down it would fall. But we immediately moved last October into a, you know, a batten down the hatches. You know, uh, we want all hands on deck, uh, everybody doing everything they can, walking the extra mile, spending the extra time, getting out with the clients, understanding what the needs are, adjusting all of our programs to you know, uh, help to meet those needs. We got the, the truth out in front of us, and uh, it put us in a much better position to deal with what needed to be done. And, and I, you see this in the economy right now. I mean, people, uh, you know, there's too many people who are, you know, waiting for the big turnaround. Oh, things will get better, you know, in the second half. Oh, things will start to really, you know, pick up in 2010. Well, you know, the reality is who knows? Uh, the only reality you know is that uh, you know people are still getting laid off and, and business is still negative. And uh, so you, you've got to deal with that truth. You, sitting back and, and waiting for the, uh, the resurrection, so to speak, you know, uh, just isn't dealing with the facts. When you have um, um, the batten down the hatches, all hands on deck, as you said, uh, there's also a tendency to go short term. The short term, I think, is, is always what's in front of us. But how, as a leader of a company, do you keep your eye on the horizon and look long term? One of the things that I uh, had in my little thing on the leading in tough times is stay true to what made you great in the first place. You should never lose sight of that. And I'll give you an example of, of someone in the automotive industry right now who is behaving that way, uh, which is Toyota. Uh, you know, Toyota's always had a great product lineup, but it's fueled by two things, innovation and continuous improvement. So this is the worst automotive market in the United States in history. I mean, automotive sales are, are at a run rate that's 40% below, you know, what they were before this uh, economic situation emerged. And so clearly, you know, uh, Toyota has tremendous issues to deal with, and uh, they don't have the affordability to, uh, to, to spend everything that they uh, were spending before when sales were up at the 15 million annualized level, but they're remaining true to what made them great in the first place. You know, they're uh, innovating in the marketplace by introducing a new model that fills a gap in their product lineup, even though it's tough times, and with their Prius, 
they're introducing a third-generation improvement in a continuous improvement kind of sense, you know, whereas some companies are still talking about, uh, you know, getting their first hybrid into their product lineup. So this is a company who knows what made them great in the first place, innovation and continuous improvement. Do they have the affordability that they had before? No, they don't. But are they staying true to those things? Yes, they are. And, uh, you know, they're, what they're thinking about is how can we position ourselves to, uh, in essence, be gaining share of market, you know, in this tough environment so that when the turnaround in automotive sales happens, they'll get their disproportionate fair share. What other advice would you be giving leaders of companies right now who may be going through some tough times for whatever reason, in addition to get the truth on the table and thinking long-term and getting all hands on deck? What else would you be saying to them? Well, I think despite the fact that, uh, you know, times are tough, people sometimes need to uh, add in certain places and they need to create some new capabilities. One of the things we're doing in our company is uh, every time we think of the word add, because it is tough times, we're concurrently thinking of the word reduce. If we're going to add somebody over here, uh, you know, where can we reduce something? Uh, Let's take a look at, uh, because we need to make trade-offs in tough times. We need to create new capabilities. In, in our industry, you know, the, uh, the, the whole world of digital communications is, has been, you know, growing very rapidly. So we need to create some new digital capabilities. And every time you think of the word create, you ought to concurrently be thinking about the word eliminate. Uh, you know, if you need to create something over here, what can you kind of eliminate in some other part of your enterprise because it's becoming outdated, no longer is necessary, or whatever. And so I think every time you think of add, think of reduce. Every time you think of create, think of eliminate. Because you are going to need to think about adding and creating, despite the fact that it's tough times. But you're going to have to make trade-offs in this environment. Your book mainly centers on leadership, and in Section 6, which is all about lessons in leadership, you have a chapter on what is leadership. Would you mind sharing that with our audience? Well, that one is uh, kind of the, the, the best definition of, of leadership that I've ever seen. And this, this is a, a topic that uh, has been written about in, in many places, yet remains a pretty elusive kind of uh, subject. And uh, I, when I was writing this particular chapter, I, I started out looking in Webster's Dictionary for what the definition of leadership was. And, uh, boy, I sure found out they didn't know anything about leadership. And uh, so I had this, uh, I'd once had the opportunity to uh, be, be at a seminar run by Mike Vance. And in this, you know, particular chapter, I, I have the, uh, the most articulate uh, description of, of what a leader is, is all about. And, you know, it's, it's establishing standards, it's managing a, a, a creative, dynamic climate, and getting people to be self-motivated uh, towards what he calls the mastery 
uh, I love the word mastery, you know, because uh, it's not that you're good at, but it's just kind of comes natural to, you know, uh, be a high performer and do it in uh, in a long-term kind of way in an environment that involves everybody in the organization where they all treat each other with uh, mutual respect and, and high uh, recognition of each other's values. And I've always tried to create that kind of environment. I, I have, you know, a different uh, chapter in called a little thing called uh, Oxymer, uh, Open, Honest, Candid Communications, Integrity, and Mutual Respect. We uh, coined this little term, but those are some words that, that I feel you know, strongly about that I think uh, a, a good leader uh, you know, brings forth in terms of conducting their own activities. So, Looking back uh, on your career so yep. far and thinking about everything that you've uh, got accomplished, What's the toughest obstacle you've had to overcome? Mm. Uh, well, the toughest obstacle. Well, that's an, an, an interesting kind of question. Uh, I, I think uh, there's too many people who accept things uh, kind of the, the way they are. And you know they're they're tied to the past, and they're insufficiently introspective and uh, reflective about what the future can be all about. If they can identify the the right kind of vision and unleash the energy of their organizations, you know I've always believed that almost anything is possible if you're given the right people, the the right resources, and uh, enough time to get the job done. And, and so I, I'm kind of a uh, optimist uh, at, at all times, and like to unleash people to bring about what's possible, and try to create an environment in which that can happen. But uh, there's there's too many people that become, in my judgment, self-fulfilling prophecies of uh, you know kind of a moribund environment rather than a dynamic one. Yeah, we had a guest the other day who said, your future is where you're focused. Yeah. So wherever you're focused, yeah, where right. your future is going to be. Yeah, well, that's good. So when you're, um, let's look at over the course of the next year, as um, you continue to work at Saatchi and Saatchi and your other projects, as you look out 12 months from now, and let's pretend you're back on the program 12 months from now, what will have had to happen in Bob Saylor's life that would force you to say, gosh, it's been a really good ride this last 12 months. So what are you looking forward to? What would have to happen to get that kind of response out of Bob over the next 12 months? Um, well, I I believe the, uh, the, the next 12 months are going to continue to be a very challenging environment. Uh, I, I think that uh, we're probably going to ask more people to dig in deeper and longer to, uh, in, a, in a tougher slog than they ever expected. The thing that would really you know, make me feel good about, irrespective of whatever the absolute numbers are, uh, I'm a competitive guy, and I like to see my organizations uh, outcompete their peers. So if you told me that 
no matter what happened to the market, that uh, we did 50% better. So if our market is down 9%, if we were only down 45 uh, if our market was down 6%, maybe I'd like to be down only 3 uh, But I'd like to be gaining share in whatever this uncertain and potentially negative you know, marketplace is. And uh, if I knew I was gaining share over the course of the next 12 months, irrespective of the absolutes, I'd have a uh, very optimistic feeling about the longer term because when the rebound happens, you know, I'd be getting my disproportionate fair share. So I think that's that's what I'd like to do: outperform our peers, gain market share, and position ourselves for a big slice of the rebound. I think that, that's a really good insight. One last question, Bob. One of the things I see leaders struggle with, especially, let's say it comes true the next 12 months or just a little bit more, still turbulent times, and we're forced to make some layoffs, it seems that that's the toughest decision for the leaders to make, and they really struggle with it. But you had some really good advice in your book of dealing with that issue. Will you share that with our audience? Yeah. Well, those those are tough times, and they're hard decisions. Um, I think that you always have to think about, you you have to keep top of mind the keeping it a great place for those who are continuing on. That, that needs to be your, your focal point as a chief executive. And, uh, you know, maybe that's the loneliness of the office. But you've got to have it be a great place for those who are there. And if there can't be as many of them, that's a sad thing. And you want to face up and, and do that in the most humane way, uh, you certainly want to fulfill all contracts. I, I've always tried to go overboard in, in helping people with things like uh, outplacement and, and getting started on the next opportunity in their life. Uh, but you, you do have to keep your enterprise a, a great place for those who are continuing on. And I think that's where your focus needs to be. The book is Start With the Answers. Our guest is Bob Salert, who's chairman of Saatchi and Saatchi. And, Bob, there's a website that's associated with the book. www.startwiththeanswer.com. Bob, is there a question that I should have asked you that I haven't asked you on our program today? Well, I think we had a very wide-ranging discussion. And uh, so I I would just, uh, I would hope that uh, if people can uh, pick up the book, that on the one hand, they will, uh, they'll read it, they'll enjoy it. What I'd also always urge people to do is to uh, to think about how they can apply it. Uh, you know, these are lessons learned from you know, a 40-plus year career in business. They're the things that work for me. They may not fit with everyone, but uh, hopefully they'll provide insight that can help people to become higher-performing individuals or have their company become a higher-performing enterprise. So... Uh, in that regard, you have to read it. I hope you enjoy it. You also have to think about applying it. Great. Good advice. And like I said before, I'll share with the audience again, that it's one of those books that I call it the nightstand reference, where you can always pick it up, turn to a chapter or an issue that you're struggling with, look up in that section of the book, 
You'll find sound advice in it. And as Bob said, take it forward and apply it out in your own career, your workplace, and the people that you're leading. Bob, thanks for being on the program. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. This or other BizTalk podcast may be downloaded by visiting our website at www.biztalkradioshow.com. Or you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. If you want to learn the strategies how to take your sales force to the next level, you can contact the Performance Group at 800-550-9509. Or visit us on the web at www.pmgllc.net.